Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Today, we're going to add another entry to our Back to the Basics series. We're going to talk a little bit about shock. And joining me today is our medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. Good afternoon, Andy. Andy's on the board, helping us sound good, editing out all of our stutters. Um, And really, the idea for this topic really came about naturally in the office. We've had some promotional review classes recently, a couple run reviews, and in the span of probably three weeks, I think either Dr. Dixon or I gave some version of the shock talk. In other words, you got a hypotensive patient, where do you start your differential? After the third or fourth time, it should have been probably the first or second time, but with me, it took a couple extra. The bell went off in my brain like, hey, we need to put a podcast together for this and get it out there to our crews and kind of talk about our approach to shock and pass that on little bit of little bit of tidbits but really start with the basics and I think the first thing to hit on is what is shock yeah I mean that's where I see a lot of people you have differences in it's great to start all these off with what's the definitions and what's the terminology you know I mean that's where people get confused it's kind of like when you're talking about the vent and you know what's CPAP and BiPAP and all these different terminologies Uh, and some of these are are analogous they mean the, the exact same thing so can you start off just talking about, let's talk about what's your definition of shock? What do you call shock? And again, we've hit on this in multiple podcasts. We are speaking directly to our MCHD medics first and foremost. So we're going to talk within our protocols. Your guys and girls out there listening from other services may have slightly different numbers or definitions that you use. And when we talk about the definition of shock, you can find things out there that discuss the level of tissue perfusion, oxygen delivery, oxygen consumption, circulatory collapse, all of these words can be used and they're all correct in in various ways. And I don't want to dig too deeply in the weeds of the details here, but for our service at MCHD, we want our paramedics to look at a patient and take their vital signs. And when we have a systolic less than 90 and or a MAP less than 65, that patient do not pass go do not collect $200, you know, run your shock differential at that point because yeah, I mean, that patient I, is in shock. I totally agree. And I think that, you know, it's hard because we, you, when you expect to see, when I, when I say shock, right, I expect to see, you know, a low blood pressure plus, right? It's, it's low blood pressure plus to me, but I totally get that. I think what Dr. Patrick's point is, is that if you have a hypotensive episode, respect that, respect that, run the differential for that chief complaint and that hypotension every time. That being said, someone in shock, what's our expectation? Our expectation is we see that plus other stuff, right? Sympathetic, you know, diaphoresis. We see altered mental status, agitation, right? Hypoperfuse, cold, clammy skin. So we expect to see the patient present like that. That being said, if you get a hypotensive episode, i.e. systolic less than 90 or, or MAP less than 65, I totally agree. I respect that. I run the differential for what that chief complaint was. I think the analogy is every patient that has chest pain does not have a STEMI. But when we get a patient with chest pain, we run our chest pain differential and we get an EKG. That's a great we analogy. Listen yeah. to, we listen yeah. to breast sounds to, to evaluate for pneumothorax. We consider aortic dissection. So again, not everyone with a blood pressure less than 90 or a MAP less than 65 is going to end up being in a state of 
you know, poor tissue perfusion, poor oxygen delivery, true shock. But yeah. we need to start there with our evaluation. And it's the easiest, most objective place to start. And what, what's the easy way? How do What flavors? Can you go over kind of the four main flavors that we describe here at MCHD yep. of shock to, to kind of make it consumable for everybody? Yeah, and if you guys girls look out there, you're going to find four, five, six, seven different different uh, ways to divide these up. The simplest way for me is to start with hypovolemic, and that's going to include non-traumatic bleeding, traumatic bleeding, and volume loss, diarrhea, and vomiting. Mm-hmm. So hypovolemia, obstructive, and we'll talk about the types of obstructive in a second, but where you have obstruction, which will impair filling pressures such that shock occurs. Uh, cardiogenic, going to be simple pump failure. And fourth, distributive and that's going to include our most commons really in anaphylactic and uh, septic shock so hypovolemic obstructive cardiogenic and distributive and if you keep those four in mind as we proceed through the talk that's the framework we want to build from agree can you talk talk a little bit about uh, hypovolemic to start with you know i mean the first one that comes to mind is you know i get shot through the liver uh someone's angry at me they shoot me through the liver and i'm internally bleeding my blood pressure is 60 on 40 i'm diaphoretic i'm agitated kind of barely awake kind of thrashing about that's kind of what i would think of classically as a hypovolemic shock all my blood volume is bleeding into my peritoneum that's why this one is number one on my list because it's the easiest one to remember and the easiest one to to picture why the patient is in shock. And uh, there are two two versions here. We're going to have traumatic and non-traumatic, and the traumatic is going to be blood loss, liver, intra-abdominally, aorta, pulmonary vessels, intrathoracically, or two 90-degree uh, femurs. You've lost a liter right. and a half in each thigh. So you think about losing them in your thighs, in your abdomen, in your chest, Open book pelvis in your pelvis. Are we going to bind the pelvis in our sick trauma patients? And the last place is out on the road or in the floor. So that can be radial artery uh, laceration, bad scalp laceration, um, any any of those spots where you where you see it. Fly, Absolutely, I think we all out. have that uh, bad scalp laceration that got kind of put over into the corner in the ED and you know, got a dressing on it and then everybody else got busy. And then you realize later on the patient had uh, bled through that dressing, bled onto the floor and was actually hypotensive from that one single injury, just a scalp laceration. So traumatic blood loss is the first half of of hypovolemic shock. The other half is going to include our non-traumatic bleeding patients. And that's going to be main group that we see. It's going to be GI, uh, mostly uh, upper can occur from lower GI. How do we tell the difference between upper and lower GI? Not a hundred percent, but we think of upper GI bleeding having a longer transit time, longer time to undergo oxidation and basically rust the iron and the hemoglobin rust, and it turns uh, from red to the uh, dark, tarry black melana. Um, other entities to think of with non-traumatic hemorrhagic shock. The other big one that we want to watch for is going to be in a young women childbearing age with ruptured ectopic pregnancy is another one to consider on that list that can be uh, very shocky uh, very quickly yeah i want to stay on task but i want to kind of i know we had talked about txa in a previous podcast can you just circle back around in trauma and in non-traumatic bleeding and shock benefits of txa just briefly well txa in general the the idea is to stabilize our clot formation, so to decrease or block the formation of the clot lysis 
uh, pathway. Yeah, you're just blocking the license pathway. Yeah. So we're not gonna we're not pro we're not pro thrombotic. We're anti thrombolytic. We're giving one gram uh, dose at MCHD for our trauma patients right now uh, with systolic less than 90, math less than 65. So we're giving it to our hypertensive trauma activations here. Uh, there are some other potential indications from our standpoint, reviewing the literature. We feel like that the evidence is not quite there, and those are going to be patients like GI bleeds, uh, like the ectopic pregnancies, postpartum hemorrhage being another. The evidence is accumulating in favor of each of those. So in the coming months to years, we may have podcast add-ons where we, yeah. we talk about our, our protocol changes. But for right now, we're, we're limiting our PXA use to our hypotensive trauma patients. And if you guys want more information and like to listen to that one, that was one we did fairly early on, so forgive forgive how uh, nervous I sound in that one. But take a listen; it's back in the in the episode list. Okay, so getting on to our therapies: large bore IV, uh, early IV, IO, crystalloid fluids is what we carry here at MCHD. But we have bantered back and forth what's coming up there, which I think is freeze dried plasma. Yeah. is uh, on the on the radar, and it's for sure on our radar. Easy to use and and likely very very beneficial in these patients. Plasma. As a volume, uh, resuscitation agent is definitely gaining favor. There was a recent study from across the pond. Um, one of the UK HEMS agencies compared giving patients hemorrhagic shock, fresh frozen plasma, and they did markedly better. Uh, so I think that it makes sense. It's a it's volume expansion, clotting factors. Um, That's a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah it, if we could just get it in a in a, a means that we could actually use it in EMS rationally. I mean, yeah. the worry with that FFP with me. It's just the time, you know, if we take the time to go through the process to use regular FFP and have to thaw this stuff out, are we going, so we may help some patients, but are we going to delay definitive therapy in another subset of those patients that may potentially harm them? So I'm, I'm kind of in the, in the corner of waiting on, um, on freeze-dried plasma or some other reconstitutable plasma uh, substitute. Yeah, the, for when that's ready for prime time, which it's not in this country. The yet. military has used it some. There's some studies from the French military, the Israeli military, that have used it with, with good outcome. So freeze-dried plasma on our radar seems to be a very ideal agent because the reconstitution time is nil, the storage is nil, the strain on the public health system as a whole as far as using and utilizing blood products appropriately without waste really checks all those boxes. So we're watching that fairly closely. Hopefully we get an FDA indication for that uh, in the next year or so in our country. We'll see how that goes. Uh, let's continue on the trauma, trauma train and talk about another uh, number two on our shock type list that oftentimes can occur traumatically, and that's obstructive shock. Why, why does obstructive shock occur? Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at a process, whether it's tension pneumothorax, in tension pneumothorax, you're putting strain early on the right side of the heart, the low pressure side, which impedes preload back to the heart. So you're decreasing cardiac output, and then ultimately, as that tension gets larger, you're actually impairing both preload and cardiac output and LV output if the pressure gets high enough gets high enough first thing that's going to go down is the right thinner muscle uh, less lower pressure system right. increases 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 then you start to impair 
the ability to, to contract, right. and then your cardiac output's really shot. So how do we treat it? Yeah, in all these, it's to relieve that pressure. So it's, it's, a, it's, a needle, it's a needle or a knife. And here at MCHD, on uh, patients not in cardiac arrest, we still do needle thoracostomies. Um, in our cardiac arrest patients, we do a, a modified tracheal tube thoracostomy to relieve that pressure and have had pretty good success with it. Another, another spot where you guys can refer back to one of our prior podcasts and take a listen for more details on our finger thoracostomy procedure. How do these patients look when they, what's tension physiology look like? Let's rewind for a second. They super shocky. You know, I could still remember the first tension I saw in my career, which was actually in the ambulance, which was a store clerk that had been shot through the right side of his chest. He actually had a hyperinflated looking right chest, was very distressed. And, you know, we all learned the kind of all, all least useful that you're, you're are going to be on your test, but are not going to actually be seen in real life because you're too busy looking after the patient. Right. What are so, those two? So it's, it's JVD and tracheal deviation, muffled heart tones and things like that. Things in these obstructive shock patients you are always on the test, but you're never really going to see. What you're going to see is a really anxious, dying patient. Sometimes the chest will look hyperinflated. They will have, if you can have a listen, they'll have decrease or absent breath sounds on one side. It's compared, you, you have to have a comparator, right? You have to see what it sounds like on the other side. This is actually fairly clear. And remember early on, as you know, this doesn't happen instantaneously. If I shoot you through the chest, it takes a couple minutes for your tension to develop. Up, right? So you're going to develop respiratory difficulty, hypoxemia followed generally by hypotension. Yeah, tachycardia. You're not people, always people going to see frank hypotension early on. And then we really tachycardic. And if you think about the tension physiology, and we'll put some links in our show notes, with each inspired breath, that breath does not escape. So it accumulates in the interthoracic cavity. If you think about that, to accumulate a liter or 1.2 or 1.4 liters of air enough to compress the entire you know, thorax or hemithorax, it's not one single breath. Each, no, each breath's additive, so that, ta that takes time. The other thing to remember when we think about tension physiology and really any of the obstructive shock physiologies is that there's an external pressure away from the heart or an external blockage that's present, whether that's air in the thoracic cavity in uh, tension pneumo, whether that's fluid around the heart in tamponade, whether that's blockage in the pulmonary vessels in PE, each of those things for different regions is going to cause preload, uh, contractility, compromise. But what we have to remember is relieving the pressure is our number one treatment, but we also have a 1B treatment that's very important as well, and that's fluids. Yeah, it's buys you time, right? I right. always say that, you know, we at MCC, we took away pericardial needles uh, in trauma and non-traumatic cases. And the reason for that is I think a lot of times we can buy time on the hypotension, right? We can oxygenate, we can intubate if we need to, so we can take care of that part of it. I believe that if you preload them up, I give them a big fluid push to the right side of the heart, you can overcome or buy time and that tension physiology enough to get to definitive therapy. Really in all, in all three of these obstructives. So to move on from, you know, tension physiology, a little bit different physiologic cause, but again, it's still obstructive and it's not obstructive external. It's within the pulmonary vascular and that's pulmonary embolus. Uh, pulmonary arteries filled with a huge clot, right side of the heart's pumping away, trying to get the blood to the lungs, to get it oxygenated, and it's running into a big roadblock. And what happens? The right side of the heart tries harder, so you get tachycardic. Uh, there's a ventilation perfusion mismatch. So the deoxygenated blood from the right side is not as able to pass through the oxygenated portions of, of the lungs through, through, through the alveoli to pick up oxygen. 
So we end up with hypoxia. So tachypnea and hypoxia looks a lot like a tension pneumothorax, except for what would their lungs sound like? Clear. So, right, clear. That's so, the sine qua non, right? You have someone that looks horrible, who's hypoxic, who's uh, tachycardic plus minus hypotensive. They have an acute onset. So acute most of the time, right? Whenever you have someone who's not okay or is okay, and then they're not okay, right? That's a vascular event until you prove otherwise. So it's a it's a PE, it's a dissection, it's a STEMI, it's a stroke, right? Some acute vascular event. I think in these patients, especially, I would agree, you know, if you have those clear lungs, PE has to be up on that, on the top of your list. And we, in, in those situations, it's important, we've talked about this on other podcasts, but I think it's important to do a little bit of, of investigation and think about some of the risk factors. It's going to help us sometimes confirm that. Again, none of these rule in or rule out anything fully, but if you have a tachypnic hypoxic patient that you're like, man, the lungs are clear. Like, I don't Why are they so yeah. hypoxic? Think about where that clot could come from. So take a look at their legs, take a look at their calves. They may have a big swollen red leg that makes it a total slam dunk. And then ask them about the risk factors and the risk factors for deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolus are things like cancer. Cancer is going to make you hypercoagulable. Recent surgery or hospitalization. So if they just had a, a hip replaced or they just had gallbladder out or any of those reasons that people can be under general anesthesia, past family history, past history in the patient themselves. Yeah, I had a blood clot 20 years ago. That puts them at an increased risk. And then some of the less common things to think about, but they're important as well, are oral contraceptives. So the patient on hormones, have they uh, traveled long distances, car rides, plane rides? And that's not you know, half an hour to grandma's house. That's those six, eight hour cross country trips and, you know, transcontinental flights and then smoking. Smoking's another mm-hmm. two. So again, none of those things are a hundred percent, but things to just trying to work through this differential. And you're like, well, their blood pressure's 85, their SATs are in the eighties, their respiratory rates fast, their heart rates fast, their lungs sound clear. What? And then, you know, PE should be on your list. Ask, ask the risk factor questions. Right. So I really like, can I circle back? I really like the way that Casey described this, right? Think of obstructive uh, mechanisms as external, i.e. pneumothorax or pericardic external pressure versus kind of internal, the uh, the massive, you know, saddle PE. Right. I think that's a really, really good way to think about it. And both of them can be defeated and you can buy, or you can't defeat them. You can buy time with preloading the heart with uh, increasing your, your preload. Same thing. Until with, you can get to definitive therapy, whether that be tube thoracostomy, pericardial window or yep. pericardiocentesis. So same thing with our third, our third flavor of, of obstructive shock. And that's going to be pericardial effusion and pericardial effusions is as it says, it's effusion in the pericardial sac. And if that fluid volume increases enough, then preload is comprom- compromised because a low pressure side is going to be affected first. Uh, we learn textbook, Bex triad, muffled heart sounds, JVD, hypotension, and we're concentrating today on the hypotension portion. That's the only one that I can actually see. Right, <laughs> right. I, I do think that if you have abnormal auscultation, right, it's going to take you away a little bit from pulmonary embolus. They're early, classically going to be clear. Late stage, day, two days out, they can definitely look like pneumonia because the, the pulmonary tissue infarcts and dies. But early on, pulmonary embolus patients are going to be clear. Uh, whereas pericardial effusion patients, they will have clear lungs, but again, muffled heart sounds. Usually, if an effusion is significant enough to cause shock, typically your heart sounds will be changed some. 
Uh, and same thing for tension pneumo. You're going to have decreased or absent breath sounds. And who, should, who should you expect? It? So, I mean, we all kind of know that classic trauma patient, you know, boyfriend gets stabbed in the box by an ice pick by someone who's angry with him and has hypotension. And you see the stab wound right, you know, right in the mid sternum between the nipple line. But talk about medical. Who, what medical patients do you tend to see this in? Or who should we suspect it in then? I think the, the big group, big two groups are going to be cancer patients, uh, malignant pericardial effusions, and in-stage renal disease patients, uremic pericardial effusions. Those two are probably one, two. I don't have the uh, frequency on the list, but that's what, I would, that's what I would bet. Some other less common things to think about is not the stab wound to the chest, but the uh, iatrogenic uh, pericardial tamponade, and that's the patient that just got a pacemaker placed or an AICD placed. So post post procedure pericardial effusion hemorrhagic tamponade is something that we see not not terribly infrequently. So that's a that's a big risk factor if they've got a a fresh surgical incision over their left chest and they just had their pacer or their defibrillator placed or wire changed. That's one to think about. And then dissection is another. Patients that have uh, thoracic aortic dissection, uh, that can dissect anterograde into the abdomen, the renal vessels, but can also dissect retrograde or backward. And that can uh, go into the aortic root, into the coronary vessels, into the pericardium. All right. No, that was a great review. So obstructive shock, kind of internal, external flavors, uh, external tension pneumothoraces and pericardial effusions, and then for internal obstruction, pulmonary embolus. Uh, can we move on now and talk a little bit about cardiogenic shock and kind of the bits and pieces of cardiogenic? So hypovolemic shock, we're, we're losing fluid, losing blood. Uh, obstructive shock, we're obstructing either externally or internally. Cardiogenic shock is a, is a flat pump failure. So that's not a failure because of fluid or a failure because of, of air. That's a failure because the pump just died. And if we think about how do we get cardiac output, we get it from stroke volume and heart rate. So the heart has to pump at a certain rate and it has to push a certain volume forward to get us our cardiac output. That's the equation. So what kills stroke volume and what kills heart rate, that's going to tell us the things that cause cardiogenic shock. Kill stroke volume with a heart attack, with an MI. An MI is going to kill your stroke volume because uh, your, your pump dies. Uh, arrhythmia, fast and or slow, is going to kill us there. Because if we go too fast, our stroke volume is going to plummet because we don't have filling time. If we go too slow, then the heart rate portion of the cardiac output equation is is going to be is going to is going to be going to be too low. In stage CHF, again more more chronic cause. Patient just has chronic vascular disease, chronic uh, arterial blockage, and heart muscle dies. Heart muscle dies, scarring, scarring, and then your pumps just you know your pumps no longer functional. And then lastly, valve failure can as well. And it's not an issue necessarily of the heart muscle wall being inadequate. It's an issue of the, the, the door, passage. The door won't stay closed. Yeah, the door won't stay closed or the door's not open wide enough and you can't get pump the fluid through and out. So how do these folks look? These are my least favorite patients of, yeah, all, super of sick. all patients. <laughs> yep, gray, ashen, diaphoretic, always sick. So from an EMS standpoint, what can we do? Fluids and pre pressors are going to be our general acute approach. Obviously, if it's an MI patient, uh, consider, consider aspirin. If it's a bradycardic patient, atropine and or pacing. If the patient is an AFib RVR at 210 and pressure of 80, we're going to look at cardioversion. But really the definitive treatment for these folks is going to be pump repair or pump um, augmentation. 
And so I like to think of that in three uh, divisions, plumbing, electrical, and structural. So if it's a plumbing problem, i.e. it's a big old clot, we revascularize or go to the cath lab, right? If it's an electrical problem, we're going to put a pacemaker in eventually, more than likely, or an AICD if it's a uh, tachydysrhythmia. And then finally, uh, structural replacement, repair the foundation, replace the valve or, or repair the valve if it's a valve issue. So that's, that's cardiogenic shock in a nutshell. On our time, time spot here, we're, we, need to, we need to head on through the last one and wrap this up. Saving the, the best for last, the most important for last. And we've talked about this in various ways on other podcasts. Our final grouping is distributive shock. We're, what are the two that we keep in that group? That's just leaky pipes, right? The fluid and the blood product won't stay where it's supposed to be, which is intravascularly. And the two main players there are, are really one of our most common, septic shock and anaphylactic shock. So septic shock, just infectious toxins, right? You have an infection that get off the evil humor, gets off into the bloodstream. Uh, there's this nasty uh, cascade of cytokines. I won't go into that. Uh, and the pipes get leaky. They, they vasodilate and they get leaky. So the pressure, pressure drop. Uh, with anaphylaxis, a little bit of a different mechanism. So you have usually a histamine-mediated uh, release. You have a massive kind of over... Immune system goes nuts. It goes nuts. Yep. So your immune system goes nuts. You have this massive histamine release causing vasodilation and leaky capillary, increased capillary permeability, which drops your blood pressure, i.e. distributive shock. So, and what's our treatment for that is just to try to fill the tank and to tighten the pipes up with a presser. And our presser choice here is norepinephrine for septic shock. For anaphylactic shock, we use epinephrine, push dose and on the pump. We look back at our uh, prior podcast, we talk about the reasons why we use epi and anaphylactic shock, and that's to, that's because anaphylactic shock also involves um, IgE-mediated bronchoconstriction, and we get beta-2 action with epinephrine a little greater than with norepinephrine, so we want those lung effects. Um, anaphylactic patient's going to look, going to rash, angioedema, wheezing, some combination of those, often GI symptoms. We look for sting in food, you know, uh, sting or venomation, some abnormal food or medication ingestion. You know, these are the inciting causes that are most common, but we don't always see those. They're not always present. You know, the guy that collapsed in his yard while he's mowing, you may not see the wasp sting, uh, but you may see urticaria or hives. You may see facial swelling. So we think about that with anaphylactic shock. Uh, for our septic shock patients, again, our infectious source is not always obvious. Make sure we're examining these patients fully. Groin abscesses, decubitus ulcers in uh, nursing home, extended care facility patients. Feet, make sure we look at our feet and our, and our diabetic patients. They can have gangrene. And remember that hypothermia is just as scary in septic shock patients as hyperthermia. So a fever is not, not always required. And again, for both of these patients and really all of the shock patients that we've talked about, you know, oftentimes whether it's hypovolemia from diarrhea and vomiting or GI bleed or distributive shock whether it's septic or anaphylactic, oftentimes IV placement in these folks is going to be tough. So don't get too uh, too crazy with IV attempt number six and IV attempt number yeah. seven in these yeah. folks. Let's go early. They're sick enough er early to uh, IO. Early to the drill. And then we can bolus them, get their intravascular volume up, and then put the IV while we're, you know, 10 minutes later in transport. One of the things I know we're going to get asked, and somebody out there is already making their notes and forming their email, is what about neurogenic shock? We haven't talked about it. It's not in any of these classifications. And you may agree or disagree agree with me, but I have my reasoning why. Why do we leave it out? 
I would say it's just on EMS diagnosis, right? My expectation as a medical director would never to have my crew diagnosis on a sick trauma patient in the field. This is a diagnosis of exclusion in ED once I have sorted out everything else and have a complete body scan and have resuscitated the patient. Um, it's just not something I think that focusing on neurogenic shock early on would be to the detriment of Takes many, many patients. We would miss the most common cause, which is a trauma patient is normally dying because they're bleeding to death. Takes our eyes off the prize. Absolutely. Right? And the treatments are vastly different, right? A patient in hypovolemic shock needs fluids, fluids, and fluids. A patient in neurogenic shock is eventually going to need pressors. And I just don't see a situation where I would take a pre-hospital trauma patient and give them pressors without imaging to confirm big T-spine lesion and an imaging to confirm the spleen and the liver and the thorax and the pelvis looked looked well as uh, in addition. So. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Can you touch just a little bit about kids? So I think one thing to remember in pediatric shock is that hypotension is going to be even more rare in a later finding because kids are tough in every way, shape or form. Kids are tougher and more resilient than adults, whether we're talking about respiratory disease and asthma, whether we're talking about septic shock, anaphylactic shock, they, they compensate much more strongly. Their hearts are strong. It makes sense. They've got a lot less beats on them, a lot less years of use. So beware in pediatric patients in any of these four category situations, whether it's a potential hypovolemia situation, a potential obstructive shock situation, a pot potential cardiogenic or distributive shock situation with a peds patient where you think one of these could be on the diagnosis and their blood pressure is borderline, maybe not hypotensive yet by our peds guidelines, but they're really tachycardic because that's what you're gonna see right up until they fall off the cliff. So watch watch out for isolated tachycardia in kids because they really can fall off the, quick, the cliff quickly. Make sure that we're utilizing our IOs quickly in pediatric patients as well. And you know, don't fear epinephrine, especially in, you know, in situations of anaphylactic shock with, with pediatric patients. I mean, we, if you think about it, and we talked about this in our anaphylaxis podcast, we give patients EpiPens to go home with and then describe for them when to use them. If they fit those diagnostic criteria when you arrive on the scene, you should give it as well. So I think that kids, neurogenic shock, we've got our four types. That, that's about all we had for you listeners today. Let's wrap it up with some take-home points. So patients in shock are sick. First and foremost, take their chief complaint or why you're there in the first place and make sure you run a differential of the top five killers on every patient. If you, I'm gonna invoke the Jim Davison rule, one of our colleagues from IU that we train with. If you don't think about it, you will not diagnose this top five killers. Next, think about what the mechanism is. If it's volume loss, replace it. If it's obstructed, remove the obstruction. And then prop, prop open. That's right. Prop open the preload while yep. we're on the way. Don't forget the importance of fluids and, and obstructive shock. When the pump fails. Fix it. Electrical, yep. structural, or plumbing problem. Right. So if it's electrical, we can fix it oftentimes. Right. Pace it. Pacing. Atropine or, or it. Or counter shock. Cardiovert it. If it's structural, yep. we can actually augment with, with uh, pressors and fluid. Fluids. Fluid in route. And if it's a plumbing issue, we know how to recognize the current of injury on ECG. We know where we're going to go quickly and we know when you get that aspirin on board because aspirin saves lives so and quick to revascularization yep and then lastly bad distribution you got leaky pops you've got uh, dilated vasculature from distributive shock increase your squeeze uh, increase your fill so fill your tank give your pressure of choice and may differ 
with differing agencies out there. Ours is norepinephrine for all minus anaphylactic shock where we prefer epinephrine. Lastly, a couple you know, final foundational things. Fluids in shock patients are never going to be bad initially. There's no reason to withhold fluids in any of these shock varieties initially. Even in, I know I can, I can name some folks right now that are, what about the cardiogenic shock patients? And if they're that hypotensive, we need to manage their airway, augment their pressure, augment their oxygen, control the airway, and continue with couldn't with, agree with more. I think I think that setting. as clinicians, we get more worried. Uh, it's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned with people's volume status, but when you are. Uh, properly in one of these four categories of shock, the most important thing is to treat that shock. And one of the mainstays, as Dr. Patrick said, is to to go early and I think aggressive with fluids. I and, couldn't agree more. And if we have to manage the airway, we know then our we know our we airway, airway management tools. We can we can do that at the same time. And then finally, make sure that if we're in the anaphylactic realm, that we're given epi early and that we're you know, targeting targeting that, that correct group of patients, because when you look at anaphylactic patients, the most common thing that causes detrimental outcome in those patients is failure to give epinephrine. Now, pediatric adult dose, you guys follow your protocols, make sure we're not, not afraid of it, because if we see that rash, we hear the wheezing, if we see hypotension, we would tell the patient over the phone to give them their EpiPen, we should administer it as well. So that runs, runs our time full. Thanks, Dr. Dixon, for joining us, and we will uh, talk to you guys again soon. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.